Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. I'm reading this morning from Matthew chapter 11. I'm taking, I took two weeks off from the series on the book of John. This was a sermon that I felt this morning to bring to us. Matthew 11. In verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone who, to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And this is where I want to focus this morning. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, this is your word. It is forever settled in heaven. You said in your own word that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. It is a light into our feet and a lamp into our path, and we thank you for Scripture. Lord, I ask you this morning, not praying for you to anoint Scripture. It is already anointed. It is your divine breath in writing. But I pray that you would anoint our hearts to receive your word, that you would touch our head to learn our hearts to feel and receive and our hands to go out and do what we've found here this morning. I pray, Lord, a blessing over these next few moments. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When we read a passage, and this is something that I really stress to people who are getting involved in serious Bible study, but not just serious Bible study, but just the reading devotionally of Scripture, is that when we read a passage from the Bible, we must, must read that passage within the context of the rest of the Bible. One of the ideas that was recovered, was not new, but it was an idea that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, was that the idea that Scripture must interpret the rest of Scripture. We must read Scripture in its own context. And if you don't, then a lot of bad ideas that arise that result in a lot of bad practices. In Mark 16, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out devils, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. There are churches still yet today that handle snakes, poisonous snakes, in, script, in service, in worship services, because of the verse that I just read. Uh, they shall pick up deadly serpents, and it will not harm them. And so they take that uh, as uh, a order, a command, a way to worship God in service to show their faith. We're going to, and they will pass these snakes around church. And there have been people that have been bitten and died 
uh, from this practice. And bad biblical interpretation leads to bad practice. It's not, it's not nothing to have bad theology. Bad theology results in bad life practices. Uh, when we were looking about four years ago, considering planting a church in Plano, and I was in conversation with a pastor of a church in Central Plano about renting their facilities, and she had three questions for me. And one of the questions was, do you intend to handle snakes in your services? And I thought she was joking, and uh, she wasn't kidding. And she said, I asked because a group that had similar backgrounds to you came to me and asked to rent the, the facility, and it's one of the questions they posed to me is, would it be okay if we brought in snakes in our services? And of course, her answer was absolutely not. Uh, and I, uh, you know, it, it baffled me. I didn't know that that kind of thing would even exist in, a, in an area like this, but evidently it does. Now, we think that's crazy, but there are people who believe that, who are sincere in their faith because they think that that's what a verse in the Bible means. They're, they don't think it's wrong because they have a, a verse that they say, I'm interpreting this scripture to mean such and such. So bad interpretation can result in some really bad life practices. So Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Sounds like a pretty easy life. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if we didn't understand and didn't take the time to understand what these verses mean, we might think that it means come to Jesus and everything in your life is just going to be easy. Like it's, it, it's the high life from here on out because I put my life into the hands of Jesus. I put His yoke upon me and, and now come to Jesus and everything goes better. You will have your best life now if you come to Jesus. And in America and in Western society in recent centuries, there has been an element of truth to that idea. That if you came to Jesus, Christians were generally respected the last 300 years. Clergy would at one time receive a discount at a clothing store and in local restaurants. Uh, you might have a better chance to be elected to office if you claim to be a Christian in this country and throughout this country's history. And our human nature always makes the mistake of thinking and assuming that the context of our immediate culture is the norm for all people everywhere throughout history. It must have always been like this for people. Christianity in America has been the exception and not the rule for how Christianity is perceived in the broader culture. In many parts of the world today and in most parts of the world throughout history, to be a Christian meant that life was not going to go better. You told Paul, you're going to have your best life now, Paul, that you've come to Jesus. He, he wouldn't have a category for that because he was accepted. He was part of the inside circle. He was uh, socially accepted and approved before he comes to Christ because he's hauling away these Christians to their death in the name of God. And now he comes to Christ and now he's beaten and and put in prison and they stoned him and eventually they're going to cut off his head. So tell Paul that coming to Jesus is going to guarantee that you're going to have your best life because you came to Christ. It doesn't always mean that. It may mean to be a Christian that you put your life on the line. It might mean that you end up dying for your beliefs. It might mean that you are not able to get a job if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. This was certainly the the 
place that the early Christians found themselves in, in areas where they wouldn't be killed if they were Christians, but a lot of times they couldn't put their trade to work. Uh, if you were a blacksmith, uh, you couldn't belong to that blacksmith's union if you were a Christian. Well, what do you do? How do you feed your family? It's the only thing that you know to do. Tell that person that, hey, come to Jesus and life's going to be a lot easier. Your children might not be allowed to go to school. I've heard from missionaries where this has been the case, where their children could not enroll in the local schools because simply they were Christian. Men, you might come home one day to find that your wife has been assaulted and there's nothing that you can do about it. Call the authorities, nothing's going to happen. Why? Because you're a Christian. And that has not been the case in America up until this point. But now in 21st century America, we are seeing a transition unfold. We are moving from the sacred to the secular. And in some pockets of our culture, that transition has been completed. Now, you can argue back and forth all day about whether or not was America was founded as a Christian nation, but there is no doubt that America's culture today is not Christianized. By and large, our nation has forgotten about God. And there are some that when they get a whiff of persecution, their instinct is to grab a hold of their rights. Well, I have rights. You know, I have a, a First Amendment and the Second Amendment, and I'm protected by this. And you may have that today, uh, but you may not have that tomorrow. And those rights are not guaranteed. It is by man-made system. They are not guaranteed by God because the people of God historically, would, it would have not even dawned on them to try to appeal to the authorities because it often was the authorities that were driving that persecution to make the life of a Christian much harder. And yet Jesus says, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John Bloom is a staff writer for a ministry that I follow. He wrote an article telling about a missionary family in the Middle East that he visited covertly that is converting Muslims to Jesus Christ. And this is what John wrote. My new friend lives in an Islamic country where sharing the gospel, if you're caught, will get you thrown into prison and likely tortured to extract information about other Christians. Yet he and his wife are daily, diligently seeking to share the gospel with others because they want to share with them and its blessings even more than they want their own survival. Each morning when this husband and wife part ways, they acknowledge to one another that it might be the last time they see each other. She knows if caught, part of her torture will almost assuredly include assault, probably repeatedly. He knows if caught, brutal things await him before a likely execution. For to them to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet each day they prayerfully pursue the spirit of Jesus' direction in order to show the lost the way of salvation and they are equipping other Christians to do the same. And when I say prayerfully, I mean prayerfully. They and their fellow leaders spend a minimum of four hours a day in prayer and God's Word and frequently fast for extended periods of time before they go out seeking souls. They do this because they have to. Spiritual strongholds do not give way and conversions do not happen unless they do this. One wrong move and a whole network of believers could be exposed. So they depend on the Holy Spirit to specifically lead them to people that the Spirit has prepared. 
The cessationist continuationism debate is also a mute point for them. Now let me explain what that means. The debate in the broader world of Christianity between cessationists and continuationists, meaning has the work and the gifts of the Spirit, signs, wonders, miracles, did that cease with the first church at the end of the close of the first century Bible? Did that stop there or did it continue? So a cessationist would say, tongues, signs, wonders, miracles, not for the church today. That was first century stuff. We don't do that. A continuationist would say, no, we believe that that is for the church today. It continues on. So he says the cessationist continuationism debate is also a moot point for them. They regularly see the Holy Spirit do things we read about in the book of Acts. As my friend described the Spirit's activity where he lives, it was clear that all the revelatory and miraculous spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12-14 through are a normal part for these believers because they really need them. When you live under the threat of death daily, either life is Christ and death is gain to you or you will not last. That is the lot that our brothers and sisters in Christ find themselves in this morning throughout the world. That is the lot in life of people that I know personally who are missionaries to Ukraine that before when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union they would hide their Bibles. They happened to be beekeepers, or her father was a beekeeper, and he would hide his Bible in the boxes. I don't know what you call them, but the boxes where the bees are, because when the KGB would come, they would turn everything upside down looking for the Bible, but the one place they weren't going to look was in the beehive. Uh, so his Bible was safe there. And she said, I remember under communist oppression that we would not announce where we were going to have church because we had to move it around. We wouldn't announce it. You had to pray and God would reveal to you where we were going to meet that week. And you were either in tune enough with God or you weren't going to go to church. So if you wanted to know, ask God. He'll tell you. Now, these aren't things that happened thousands of years ago. These are people that I know personally that, that this happened to. I, I talked to uh, I had the wonderful privilege to basically be his chauffeur for one day, a man named uh, Elenkov, Bishop Elenkov. Uh, Bishop Elenkov, this was about 15 years ago, I shuttled him around on a Sunday between a couple churches. We had him preach for us and then we took him somewhere else. And he was telling stories in church and he told me stories in the car and the things that he had personally witnessed were of Book of Acts proportion. He had personally baptized over 10,000 people. He had spent the majority, he was in his 50s, had spent the majority of his adult life in prison for preaching the gospel. Had had things that I wouldn't even go into this morning that had happened to him. But we got to the other church where he was preaching that evening and we were sitting in the pastor's office before we were going out. And he told, he said we would get together. And he said we actually had sympathetic KGB agents who were, they weren't Christian, but they also thought it was a big waste of their time to go around persecuting these people who aren't hurting anybody. And he said, we would have KGB agents that would come to us and say, hey, you probably want to shift where you're having your weekly services, which was all in homes. They said, because they're on to you, you probably want to go somewhere else. And he said, so we would go and he said, we would, uh, he said, we would just simply sit around. He said, we couldn't sing because you couldn't be that loud. He said, so we would simply uh, have our church for three hours. 
We were, and the pastor of that church in the office said, kind of threw up his hands. He goes, if you couldn't sing, he goes, what in the world did you do for three hours? And Ellen Kov said, we prayed. We prayed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German pastor in World War II who opposed the Nazi regime and regime, and he was hung by the Nazis when he was only 39 years old, wrote, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us all at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And Bonhoeffer's most famous line, which is quoted all the time, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And as I hear Bonhoeffer's words, which are so true, I also hear the words of my Lord and Savior, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because that's Matthew 11 and five chapters later in Matthew 16. Jesus cries out, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The only way you find true rest in Jesus Christ is to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Him. So we know that to be a follower of Jesus does not guarantee a life of ease. In fact, to be a disciple of Jesus means to give up your life, your dreams, your idea of fulfillment, and take on His life and live out the purposes of Christ and obey His commandments. It means to come and die on a cross every day and surrender to Jesus Christ. And when you come to Christ, you do lay down a weight and you do take a yoke that is light in comparison. Now, I never farmed. I don't know that much about farming, but a yoke is a wooden beam that is used to connect a pair of oxen or other animals so that they can work together. And usually it's connected to a plow or cart that they are pulling, but it's always connected to the animals in a way that they can't get out of the yoke. And the Bible uses this imagery more than once to talk about a yoke because the writers of Scripture are using imagery that those people would have understood. Paul tells the Corinthians not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's a mismatch for righteousness and darkness to be paired together. And this is echoing an Old Testament law. Deuteronomy said that to plow an ox and donkey together, that you shouldn't do that. It's unequally yoked. And Paul says this is what it means to be tied together with someone who doesn't believe. And by the time that Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, the imagery of the yoke was commonly used in Jewish writings to refer to the obedience to the law of Moses, that Old Testament law. The yoke of the law. And it wasn't a negative thing. It was, it was a positive thing. You should be yoked with the law. That it makes everything, because the purpose of the yoke is to, it's synergy. It's 2 plus 2 equals 15. You know, it, it takes the, the, the two parts and it makes the, the sum of, uh, the two parts greater than if they would be working individually. But the demands of legalism made the law a burden to God's people instead of a blessing. And Jesus was inviting people to remove the yoke of the law and to take on His yoke. So what about the Sermon on the Mount? 
where he taught earlier in Matthew. He doesn't destroy the law, he enhances it. He moves compliance to the law from a matter of just the external. You need to do these things. You shouldn't wear clothes that are of mixed fiber. You, sh you know, all the intricacies of the Old Testament law, or even with morality, it was always an act. It had never, nothing to do with the motive. And Jesus doesn't destroy the law, he enhances it, he fulfills it. And now he moves it to a matter of the heart. And then he says, you have to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So as if obedience to the law wasn't hard enough, now Jesus says your heart has to be clean too and your heart better be perfect. You've got to be perfect inside and out. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. Because you cannot be justified by God, declared innocent of your sins, unless there is total perfection. Only perfection, nothing less, will grant you entrance to God's kingdom and make you right with God and grant you eternal life. It requires absolute, total perfection to make it. And that's a problem because if it's dependent on our perfection, none of us stand a chance. There's a heresy that's been around since at least the 5th century that says that technically humans could, a person technically could achieve perfection without divine grace. That a person theoretically could, could actually make this happen. And uh, we see shades of this in the self-help preaching of today. Uh, it's, n nothing's new. All, all the heresies have been around forever. They just come in different uh, forms and packages. Uh, but, you know, I, I need to be perfect. I do need to be perfect. I have to be perfect. And that's a problem because I can't be perfect. But I am perfect because Jesus Christ has imputed His righteousness to me. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and then He credits that perfection that He owns. And He imputes that to me and says, now you can put on my righteousness. I am saved because of the righteousness of Christ, not with anything that I do. And yet that does not give us a license to sin. Paul asks this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers his own question. He says, God forbid. The yoke of Christ is light, but the weight of sin will crush us to death. Now, I've never ran a marathon. Uh, the closest I've ever got to a marathon was I used to pump gas at a marathon gas station. Like that's as close as I'm getting to a marathon. I don't get the joke, don't see the appeal. I have close friends who do it, nothing wrong with it. It's great if they do. I have friends that run marathons. Um, just not my thing. But I've seen people that run, I drive around, I see people jogging in the neighborhood and they're never dressed like me when they run. They're never wearing hard sole shoes and jacket and they're just, they're, they're not dressed like that. They're not wearing blue jeans. Like have you ever ran in, in denim and all of a sudden you realize like the weight of the jeans starts to become aware, start becoming aware of just how heavy uh, those clothes are. Uh, when you run, you are intentional about not carrying any more weight than you have to. Runners dress a certain way. They're as light as they possibly can because they're running. Nobody runs the Dallas Marathon with a backpack. If you see somebody in a marathon with a backpack, you probably ought to get away from them. That's, there's, there's probably something going on here. Nobody does that. Why? Because runners hate extra weight. They want to be as light as possible. They want to just as streamlined and as aerodynamic as possible. You, you see swimmers in the Olympics, and I mean, they're, they're shaved head to toe because they're, you know, it, it's just that mental thing about I want to be as light and as streamlined 
as possible. Now, put a pin in, in that, that we don't want extra weight. Just put a pin in that and read, hear what the writer of Hebrews says. They were stoned, speaking of those who were persecuted. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. That's the end of Hebrews 11. Then the writer, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews then says, Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are the cloud of witnesses? All these people he was just talking about who were persecuted. Let, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Writer is saying we're in a race. It's not the first time Paul uses imagery like this, and so does this writer, that uh, the, 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 the imagery, the language of being in a race, they knew what that meant. They knew what that was. It was a thing then. And this writer is saying when you run, you lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. John Owen, that great 17th century Puritan, said, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Sin will destroy you in this life, and it will lead to everlasting punishment in the next, without the regenerating, forgiving, saving work of Jesus Christ. But we don't hear about what we call hell, we're, we call it hell. The Bible refers to hell as the grave, but when we talk about hell, we're usually talking about a, a place of eternal punishment. And Jesus said hell is a place of eternal punishment in Luke 16. He said hell has an unquenchable fire in Mark 9, that it is a place where the worm does not die in Mark 9. Jesus said hell is a place where people will gnash their teeth in anguish in Matthew 13. He said hell is a place of no return in Luke 16. And he calls hell outer darkness in Matthew 25. In Matthew 10, he compares it to a place called Gehenna. Gehenna was an area outside of Jerusalem. At one time in the Old Testament, it's where they would, uh, the, the people of God, the children of Israel, would take their infant children when they were in idolatry and they would pass them through the fire. They would offer them as human sacrifices to their idol in the fire. This is the place where that happened. In the New Testament, it had become the city of Jerusalem's trash dump. They would take their trash to that place. It was a horrid place. There was stench. There were maggots. Uh, and there was always a continual fire as they would try to keep that burned. And when Jesus refers to this place, He says it's like Gehenna outside the city. This is what that place is like. And He talks about it in much greater detail than He ever talks about heaven. Now, some people think the language of Jesus about hell is symbolic. And maybe it is. Maybe it's not a literal lake of fire. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. That's irrelevant. I've had people bring this to me. I've had preacher friends have this conversation with me and say, well, is, is, is this a literal place? And my answer to that is, remember that if it's not a symbol 
If it's not literal, then a symbol still describes something that is just as real. It just describes it in language that communicates the essence. And sometimes it does it because there are no words that can accurately describe it, and so symbolism must be used. If it is symbolic, it is symbolic and representative of something that is so beyond our imagination of how horrific it is that all that they could say was, it is like this. But whatever it is, Jesus says it's a real place. And the question has been asked, how could a loving God send people to hell? And it's the wrong question. The question is, how could a holy God not demand a penalty for sin? Because one, if there is such thing as a small sin, one small sin is infinitely offensive to an infinitely holy God. And it offends His holiness. And we would not understand hell if we didn't understand that. But we see the glory of God and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to save people from all this. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus says, you don't have to go there. I have provided a perfection that you cannot accomplish, but that I accomplished on the cross. That God has shown us grace. That grace was never meant to give us more room for sin. It is given in our lives so that we can live above sin. So we have the power of God to destroy sin in our lives because when we run this race, nothing is heavier than sin. It won't just weigh you down, sin will pull you under. If you see a man drowning and you're on a boat, you don't tie a bowling ball to a rope and toss it out to him and say, here, grab onto this. See how that works out for you. It'll boat anchor them. I am this morning throwing you a life preserver to save you from a life of heartache and your soul from destruction. And it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hate sin, and yet there is an old nature in me and in you that we're drawn to sin. Now, Paul, like Paul's the guy in the New Testament. He is that, he writes the majority of the New Testament. And, and it's Paul who says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if you feel like when I read that, that it's just like all crisscross, that's exactly what Paul's trying to get in your head, is that this is all like what I want to do, I can't do, and what I can't do, I want to do, and it's just, it's just, he's just writing it almost in circles. And then he cries out, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. For I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he's just, oh, wretched man that I am. Here Paul is writing. We put an exclamation point on, oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are prone to worship the great American idol of self. We exalt self and we place the needs and the desires of me above everything else. It is a cancer that will destroy us from the inside and make a mockery of our life. Sin is a cancer. Sin is a cancer. 
never had cancer. I've had people I love who were affected by it. You probably have too. Live long enough, that'll probably be the case for everybody. One of the biggest battles that we deal with in our own personal health and the people around us. But if I ever was diagnosed with cancer, one of someone in my family, if I ever do have to face down that giant, I will only go to a doctor that will shoot me square. I will look at him in the eye and say, you either talk to me straight or I'm out of here. I can throw a rock in the Metroplex and find a doctor. Uh, I demand to have a doctor that will not sh shy away from the hard conversations and have a straight, honest conversation with me. That's a requirement. And so it is with preachers. So it is with us. We ought not to be afraid to talk about sin. We are shepherds called to care for the souls and to protect the people of God from wolves both outside and inside the church. And we're living in a generation where things that were once assumed by the church can no longer be assumed. I have a friend of mine that's very involved in music ministry and he's really good at what he does and incredible keyboard player and he's made a lot of connections and ties with churches around the area and he's, he's talked to me before. He got a little disillusioned by seeing some of the things that, that he sees going on in church. He, and he's told me, he said, I don't mean on, on the pew. He said, I mean in church leadership. He said, Jeff, he said, in so many of these churches, he said, the conversation about alcohol, he goes, they passed that miles down the road. He goes, that's not even a conversation anymore. He said, the conversation that they're dealing with now, and he said, some of the people that I know that are involved in music ministry in large churches is marijuana. He said, I have people who lead worship and will smoke dope. He goes, it's like not a big deal to them. And now it's the conversation as well, should we be doing that? And now, if you've been around Christianity any length of time or even know about Christianity any length of time, you would have known that just a decade or two decades ago, that would have been absurd. Like that would have just, that would have never, that conversation would have never happened. But you cannot assume things today that we assumed even 20 years ago. It is a slippery, slippery slope. The Bible talks about things like this. He says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? God has called his people to be clean and pure in this world. And the reason the yoke of Christ is light is because there is no sin in Jesus Christ. Paul said Christ did no sin. Peter said Christ committed no sin. And yet you cannot overcome sin legalistically. You cannot say, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do this and I'm going to achieve it by willpower. That never works out well. The demands of legalism are too great. They are too heavy. They make us weary. We are invited as the people of God to wear His yoke because in His yoke we are bound together with Him. Jesus Christ is the one who is with us in this yoke. And so now He's the one that's just pulling us along. But it's not bondage. It's the greatest freedom and liberty that you could ever know when you are intertwined with the person of Jesus Christ. When I can't carry the load, Christ is there to carry it with me. Who better to be yoked together with than the Lord Jesus Christ? Someone asked me, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I, <laughs> I love good questions. I love good questions. Someone asked me one time, how do you know the Bible is true? And he was not a believer. And I, I said, man, I, I, that, what a great question. Uh, and, and likewise, what does it mean to be a Christian? 
not the textbook definition because in the conversation that wasn't the that wasn't the question in the conversation like can you textbook define me what a christian is i could have said a, a textbook definition means that you're declared righteous by christ by his grace through faith in christ that god's wrath was upon you because you were a sinner you were damned eternally but because of the work of christ on the cross you now have peace with god that we are no longer under condemnation in the grand courtroom of the universe, that Christ secured your victory at the cross over sin, death, and hell. You have eternal life. You're going to enjoy the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. You're going to live in an eternal life uh, and experience holy things that your mind cannot comprehend. I could have said all those things, but that's just not what the person was asking. What does it mean, in the context that the person was asking, what does it mean to be a Christian in this life? Like, what does that look like? What does it mean to be a Christian? And so I close with these four things, just real four short things. I did not give the person this answer then. I, I'm not good at thinking on my feet. I have to come back and answer questions. I do not think on my feet very well. Um, just give me a day or two to prepare an answer and I'll come back. Um, and this is what I come back with. These four things. This is what it means to be a Christian. Number one, you are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are disciples. We follow His teachings and His law. The law of Christ has replaced the law of the Old Testament, or it has fulfilled it. It has completed it. I think a much better word than replaced, but it has completed what started in the Old Testament. And now I am a disciple and a follower of Christ. People who are disciples of, of Buddha will read His writings closely, will, will submit to His teachings. Well, we're not disciples of Buddha. We are disciples of Christ. We, we follow Him and His teachings, and we do our best to submit ourselves to that. And along that is that we are worshipers of Him. You can be a disciple and not be a worshiper. Buddha is not considered divine like we consider Christ divine, or even other religions call their God divine. Buddha wasn't that. He was more of just a, a man who was wise, and you follow his teachings if you're a disciple. But he's not really, he's revered, but he's not worshipped as, as deity. So it's not enough just to be a disciple of Christ, but we worship Him as the God of this universe. Number two, to be a Christian means we will take up a cross and we will die to ourselves and we will deny ourselves. And that is something that must be done every day. Paul said, I die daily. Why? Because I could do a pretty good job of dying today and get up tomorrow and just God be a million miles from me. I, every day. I put myself on a cross and I die to me. Number three, to be a Christian means that we will find rest in Him. Rest from the weight of sin. Rest from the pressure to be perfect by your own works. Rest in the finished work of what Christ did on the cross. I am in Him. I am complete in Him. I, I took a seminary class my first seminary class I took in 2016 on campus in St. Louis, um, Urshan Graduate School of Theology, and David Norris was the instructor. And all these people, most of us first time ever in a setting like that. And he stood up, and if you don't know David Norris, your life is lesser for it, one of the finest people I've ever known. And he stood up to the class and, and he said, this is seminary, this is where you come to do 
scholarship. This is where you come to earn a degree. He said, if you never get a degree from this place or anywhere else, if you never even take another class, he said, your ministry is just as good and just as powerful and just as valid. He said, because you are complete in Him. And it, it just took a weight off the whole class, is that I am complete in Christ. Like, I'm not lacking anything. If I never have anything else, I am complete in Him. I'll never forget that. I find my rest in Him. I am complete in Him. Number four, you will find rest in the righteousness of Christ. You might die for what you believe. You might lose everything for what you believe. And if you do, you will be able to testify. If you lose everything for Christ, you'll be able to still testify. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Stand with me this morning as we pray. Lord, we are blessed beyond measure that we have these words from you that we have received this morning a divine invitation that when we feel like we don't measure up, when we feel like that we're not good enough, when we even may question our own salvation, we can look unto you, the author and finisher of our faith, that I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. And while that does not give me a license to sin, and while we will die daily on a cross, we look to you for our salvation, our hope. We trust in you. Without you, we can do nothing. And Lord, we rest in you this morning in the chaos of a lost and broken and confused and hurting world, we are privileged and blessed to know you, to find our rest and comfort in you. Lord, that when we are misunderstood, when we are maligned, when our character is questioned, that we can look to you and valid or not, we can look to you and say, Lord, I am complete in you. I find my forgiveness. I find fresh starts in you. I find new hope in you. I pray today as we go our ways this week, as we are dismissed into the fog of secularity in this world, that this word, not my words, but your word would stay in our hearts, in our heads, and would keep us today, that we would walk according to your will, that our deeds and acts this week would be pleasing unto you and that we would be worshipers of Christ in everything that we do today, in the way we conduct ourselves, in the way we live our lives, that it would reflect your glory and that we would be worshipers unto you. And we ask this today in the name above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you this morning.